Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today, it's me, Aaron, and I will be hosting, and I've got Jeff here, and we are going to talk to you about GPS. So what is GPS, and why should we care as mountain bikers? So first off, let's start off with the history of the development of GPS. This actually dates back to 1957 when Russia launched the first man-made satellite named Sputnik, which you are all probably have heard that name before. Um, and two American physicists at the time, William Geyer and George Weifenbach, they were monitoring Sputnik's radio transmission, and they realized that because of the Doppler effect, they could calculate exactly where the satellite was in its orbit. So this actually had implications going forward, and their boss tasked them essentially with uh, solving the reverse problem. So instead of finding where a satellite was in its orbit, could you find a position on Earth from a satellite in space? So this led to the development of the transit system in 1959, and this was initially a system of five satellites that was it was first used to find the position of uh, the U.S. Navy's submarines that were carrying nuclear missiles. So very important stuff here. And then the Navy eventually used that for their ships uh, above water as well. So. The transit system was kind of limited. There were only five satellites in the system at the beginning, um, so subs and ships could only get fixed on their position once an hour instead of with GPS. It's continuous. And the transit system actually remained in use until 1996 when it was finally phased out for the uh, the more modern GPS that we know. So throughout the 60s, the different branches of the military, they were working on similar systems. They all kind of had their own version of GPS going. So in the early 70s, the various branches of the military, they got together and they decided to pursue one common system, which ended up becoming GPS, or Global Positioning System, as we know it. So 10 satellites were launched between 1978 and 1985, and the final 24th satellite was launched in 1994. And they're arranged in what's called a constellation, and the way they are arranged is that no matter where you are on Earth or what time of day it is, there are at least four satellites overhead. And also, you know, Russia during this time was also developing their own system, and that's called GLONASS, G-L-O-N-A-S-S is the abbreviation, which stands for Global Navigation Satellite System. But it did lag a little bit behind the U.S. It wasn't even until 2011 that the uh, GLONASS had 24 satellites in orbit for full global coverage. Yeah, and these days, the U.S. military is actually replacing some of the satellites. So they're going through and upgrading a lot of the hardware. Um, and I believe they're about halfway through with that right now. For those who don't know, I was in the Air Force for several years. And during that time, I was stationed in Colorado Springs and got to actually tour the base where uh, the GPS satellites are sort of controlled. I mean, you don't really 
you're not like flying them. They kind of <laughs> fly like a drone, right? They fly themselves, but yeah, it's the, there's an air force base out in the plains of Colorado Springs called Shriver air force base, where all the military personnel that are in charge of the GPS system are stationed. Not anything exciting to report there. Uh, it's just a building with a bunch of computers in it. Sweet. We love buildings with computers. <laughs> so you know, obviously, as we've gone through the history of GPS, you can see that it was mostly for military purposes. And it wasn't until 1983 that civilians were allowed to tap into GPS signals. And that came about from the unfortunate event of a, a Korean airliner was shot down by the Soviet Union in 1983. And President Reagan at the time then issued a directive allowing civilian use of GPS because it was important for you know navigational purposes for aircraft to know where they were, make sure they weren't straying into airspace where they shouldn't have been. But even though early you know early on the civilian signal was a lower quality signal than the one that the military used. And this was called selective availability. And this continued on until 1996, Bill Clinton issued a directive to end selective availability, but that actually didn't go into effect until May 2nd, 2000. So there was a good chunk of time there, 17 years, where there was one signal for the military that was you know, very accurate and one that was purposely degraded for civilian use. So like I said, that went into effect in May of 2000 and GPS users around the globe now have access to the same high quality signal that the military does. But since the U.S. owns and operates GPS, they can selectively deny service to certain regions if needed. So you know, say you don't want a certain country to be able to use GPS, then you can basically just turn off the satellites, essentially. Right? Yeah. Good to know if you're trying to mountain bike in Iraq or Iran <laughs> or somewhere like that. Exactly. Yeah. You may need a, um, like just a wheel computer or something, <laughs> a little magnet on your spokes. Finally, in 2004, the first GPS-enabled phones were being tested by Qualcomm, if you guys remember them, mm-hmm. and uh, which is a little hard to believe. It's only been you know a little over a decade since GPS was available in phones. It's something we probably just kind of take for granted now because it's on every pretty much every smartphone you can get. Yeah, and, and speaking of that history, I got my first GPS handheld GPS device. In 2000. So Leah got me that for Christmas uh, when we were living out in Colorado. And um, yeah, it was really cool for hiking. But yeah, that's interesting to know that that was right when the accuracy was the ban on the accuracy was lifted. Yeah, because before before the ban was lifted, a GPS in your car really wouldn't have been that much used right. to you. You know, now that I think the signal is down within a two meter accuracy Whereas before the re- resolution was nowhere near as clear, so right, yeah, and just one thing to point out: when you have a GPS, or you say your phone has GPS, or you have a Garmin or whatever, that's actually a GPS receiver. So that's just receiving the signal from the satellites. But GPS actually refers to the system of satellites up in space above us. So oh, good well, to know. Yeah, so you know, kind of like a, a radio. You know, it's a receiver. It's taking the signal in. All right. So that is about the extent of my knowledge of GPS. So Jeff, I know you know a lot about this since this is kind of how single tracks got its start after all. 
So how does GPS work? Well, the the simple explanation and the only one that I know myself is that, you know, GPS is all based around us having a really accurate clock. So that all starts with the super accurate timekeeping that the military has with like the Naval Observatory. And basically, Aaron kind of mentioned it, but the satellites are constantly sending radio signals. And along with those radio signals, what they're sending is the time uh, that the signal was sent and which satellite it was coming from. So your GPS unit has a clock on it, a really accurate clock, and it compares the time on its clock to the time of the signal that it's receiving. So um, it'll just do some addition and subtraction there and figure out, okay, it took, you know, let's say five seconds for the signal to come from satellite one. Um, and so it can start to guess where you are based on that timing. So it uses something called triangulation, which basically means you need to have signal from three satellites uh, to get a proper fix on your location. And if you think about it, really what you're getting is like an XY coordinate for your location. So that's why to get those two points, X and Y, you need three satellites. So you can also use, if you have a fourth satellite signal, you can use that one to get your Z coordinate, so your elevation. Um, and Aaron mentioned earlier that the way the system is set up, you are guaranteed to always have four satellites that are visible wherever you are on Earth and whenever you are. So that's why a lot of times elevation isn't super accurate in GPS and some GPS units it won't even give you that um, because getting all four of those satellite signals locked on can be difficult depending on where you are. Speaking of having difficulty getting satellite signals, um, because you're receiving from a satellite, you know, these radio signals, there are things that can interfere with those signals and make can kind of degrade the accuracy or, or even the coverage of the unit that you're using. This isn't as bad as it used to be in the early days. The new uh, GPS units have much more sensitive uh, like computer chips in them, but things like cloud and tree cover can affect it, even terrain. So if you're, you know, riding along the side of a mountain or something. Sometimes the mountains can block those signals depending on where the satellites are in the sky that you're trying to uh, get a fix on. So with all these sort of interferences, obviously you can you introduce some error rates. And Aaron in, mentioned that the accuracy of GPS is, you know, it's quoted in meters. So they'll say like, you know, your position is known within a couple meters. And that can change, again, based on the quality of the signal. So some GPS units will tell you, you know, right now you're tracking within two meters or, you know, or maybe it's 30 meters um, to just give you an idea of how accurate that is. But basically, you don't know which direction it's wrong in. So basically, when it's giving you a position, there's like a circle around you that's that big. So if, if it's two meters, um, you could be anywhere within that two meters circle on your GPS unit. And so for that reason, GPS units generally overestimate your distances when you're tracking how far you're going for a ride. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but, but basically it has to do with how the points are connected during your ride. So 
a lot of people will assume that their GPS is overestimating, but um, it's also possible that they're underestimating. So again, you don't know which direction these errors are going, uh, particularly for mountain biking where trails are have a lot of curves in them. You know, a lot of times the GPS might think you're on the inside of the curve when you're actually on the outside of the curve. So it's also possible to underestimate distances. And this is also why even if you're riding with some friends on a ride and you all have GPS units, you may even all have the same exact GPS unit um, riding the same trail at the same time. You're going to get different distances, different speeds, and that sort of thing. So that's totally normal. That's just how GPS works. Like Aaron said, the GPS signals are they're radio signals, so they're only traveling from the satellite to your device. Um, nobody is tracking you. Um, it's not like the movies where you know they put a thing on a car and like it's you know somebody's got a map where they can see you know where's every GPS <laughs> user in the world at this time. That, that's just not possible. So it's one way communication. And then Aaron also mentioned the GLONASS network uh, that Russia recently completed in 2011. And many GPS units that cyclists use are capable of tapping into that satellite system as well. And they do this for redundancy. So if if something goes wrong with some of the US-based GPS satellites that you're connecting to, and also they use it supposedly to improve accuracy. Um, Whether or not that's really possible, I'm not sure. But people do tend to prefer GPS units that are able to use both satellite systems. And then also, you know, in the case of selective availability, maybe the U.S. turns off access, but Russia keeps it on or vice versa. So, um, yeah, it's good to have a backup. Yeah, and just anecdotally, I can say that my old GPS unit just, or GPS receiver was just GPS based. It didn't have the ability to see the GLONASS uh, satellites, and my new one does, and it picks up a signal much faster, whereas the old one could take, you know, 30 seconds or a minute. Um, my new GPS, it's a matter of 10 seconds or less, and it, and it finds a signal. So, You talked about uh, the data that we get, this X, Y, and Z, these three-dimensional coordinates. So who cares? What can we do with it? (laughs) Right. Well, at its core, you know, GPS is actually a really simple system. Again, all it's really telling you is is a set of coordinates. It's saying you're at point X, Y, Z on the world, and that's about it. But with that, you can actually do some cool stuff and figure out some things. Like, for instance, you can track your speed. So you can see where you are at a given time, and then one second later, you can see where your position is, and then you can calculate your speed or velocity, as physicists like to call it. (laughs) You can also use it to determine distance. So the way that works is, um, again, you know, the GPS unit records your current XY location, and then a second later, say you move, and it calculates that XY position, and then it just does the math and figures out how far apart those positions are. Um, and then it does that throughout your ride. So it's, it's constantly adding, you know, where are you now? Where were you, you know, the previous measurement? And then it's just adding all that up. Because of that, it's really a, creating a series of like straight lines. So say your GPS unit was only, you know, tracking you every minute um, and you're riding a trail that's got a lot of twists and turns. Well, 
if you look at the the plot of that, it's actually just going to be a straight line. It's just it's not going to show you going around the curves or anything. It's just going to show you at point A, and then you're going to pop up at point B a minute later. So one of the things that that GPS units do is they a lot of times they offer a way for you to change the frequency of the polling. Basically, they call it polling uh, to figure out where you are, what your XY position is. And generally for biking, like a one-second polling interval is plenty. It gives you a lot of resolution and gives you pretty good distance and speed estimates. Then with the Z data, you can figure out your current elevation. You can also do the same thing where you could track your elevation gain and loss over a ride. And then a lot of GPS units also pair other sensors. So the, the GPS sensor is the main thing that's sensing the satellites, that's translating those signals into X and Y. But a lot of units will also include a barometer for altitude. And in my opinion and experience, um, and in talking with people at, at some GPS companies, the barometer doesn't, it doesn't do a whole lot to improve your elevation accuracy. Um, that's the way it's sold as doing that. But the barometer is... It, Instead of using the GPS data to calculate your, your Z position or your elevation, it's using air pressure, um, which is a pretty good way to do that, to, to estimate elevation, because as you rise, air pressure decreases. But the problem is other things also cause the air pressure to change. Uh, like weather, right? right? <laughs> like weather, yeah. So, you know, you could be sitting still in a parking lot and a storm system rolls through and, and you'll your GPS will think that you're climbing a mountain. So there are ways that these units attempt to calibrate themselves. But again, but if once they're calibrating themselves, they're using the GPS data. It turns out that one of the better ways that you can actually improve your your elevation data is to actually just run your gps data through software after the ride um so there are these like models of the earth that basically you know were created using satellites but using like imagery satellite imagery uh, to figure out elevations at various points on the earth and so the software will just run your xy coordinates through um, and compare it to this database of like all the known elevations on the planet, and then it'll give you your, your Z elevation. So anyway, other sensors that a lot of GPS units will have include like a digital compass, which is really good if you're using the GPS for like turn-by-turn -turn directions. So wherever you're pointing the GPS, you want that to line up with where the actual trail is. So a digital compass allows that to happen. And then some also include like a thermometer uh, for people who like to really geek out. Um, but that has obviously has nothing to do with helping you figure out where you are or how fast you're going. I don't know. I get really hot when I'm going fast. <laughs> All right. So now we have this, this data. How does that translate to maps? Right. So, you know, I talked about how GPS devices figure out your distance uh, by taking those XY points along your route and uh, drawing straight lines between them. So basically what that's called is, it's called a digital breadcrumb trail. So, you know, you imagine you're going down a trail and you're dropping these breadcrumbs. Um, and that's what the, the GPS is doing for you. It's recording those XY coordinates um, during the ride. So th at its simplest use case uh, for a breadcrumb trail, you know, the GPS unit that I had back in 2000, 
it wasn't good for a lot. I mean, it, it just had the basics, but it did have this digital breadcrumb trail and, and it was sold as something that would help you keep you from getting lost uh, if you're like out in the woods. And the way that you would use this is basically you got your GPS on, you're walking around and then you realize, oh shoot, I'm lost. And you can use it. Then you look at your GPS and it's got that breadcrumb and you basically just follow those breadcrumbs back to where you started. You know, these really early inexpensive GPS units didn't have any sort of maps built into them. Um, so you're relying on just where you had been to actually, you know, use it for any kind of navigation. Despite how limited this breadcrumb trail might seem, I actually found myself using it several times uh, in the early 2000s after getting lost. Um, one time, I, a friend and I hiked up Camelback Mountain uh, in Phoenix, uh, and we did it sort of like it was, it was evening and it was starting to get dark, and you know we got up to the top and sunsets, and then we're like, oh shoot, we got to get down, and it was just so dark we could not see the trail at all. We couldn't figure out, you know, there's just a jumble of like rocks and cacti and stuff, and we just couldn't, we could not tell which way the trail went. So pulled out the GPS and basically used that to guide us and figure out like how the heck did we get up there. Um, and we were able to get back down. And then also, I've used the breadcrumbs to like shortcut trail. Um, you know, if I'm trying to get back in a hurry or I don't know, just looking to explore, you know, I've done that on the Appalachian Trail. You know, hike out one way and then you, know, you look at the map and you say, huh, we did a little, you know, curly cue here. Maybe we could just cut that off so you can, you can use that to try to shortcut a trail. I don't recommend it though. I've, got into a lot of trouble doing that because <laughs> yeah the trail is usually a lot easier to to walk on than like just straight through the bush so speaking of maps a lot of the larger gps units including smartphones include something called a base map and what this is is this is sort of the the analog or the this is the digital version of a printed map. So remember road maps they used to get and you'd like fold them out and um, you know you could see all the roads and trails and points of interest. Well that's basically what your your base map is on a phone or on a GPS device. And your breadcrumb breadcrumb trail then becomes sort of your highlighter that you would use on the map. You know, when you're showing your friend like how to get from A to B on the map, you'd you'd get out your yellow highlighter and like highlight the roads that he needs to take to get there. And that's what that's what a breadcrumb trail can do. And you can also use other people's breadcrumb trails. So say a friend, you know, did some awesome ride and he had his GPS on, um, he gets back, he can share that that highlighted route with you through various different formats. Uh, the main, most popular one is called GPX. It's actually a really simple thing, these GPS data files. Um, they're basically just like the GPS. It's just a list of X and Y coordinates um, and a timestamp. So where, which position were you at at what time? Um, and it's just a list of those. And again, it's all just connecting the dots and there's your route. So there's not a lot of magic to it. But a lot of GPS units can also use that data to then give you turn-by-turn directions. This is obviously really helpful if you're driving in a car. Um, I've tried to use, and I know a lot of other people have tried to use GPS data on a trail 
to get turn by turn directions. And depending on what you're doing, it, it can be helpful or sometimes not. So if you're, if you're riding somewhere like here, a local example would be like yellow river, uh, <laughs> where, you know, there every hundred feet, there's an intersection, the GPS and, and a lot of the intersections, they're not at right angles. You know, you think about streets, uh, they typically intersect each other at a right angle. So it's, it's easy to see, like, do I go left, right, or straight? Uh, whereas mountain bike trails, they cross each other at weird angles, like all the time. Um, so even if you have those turn by turn directions, it's, I found it's rarely clear which fork you're actually supposed to take until you've gotten down it a little bit. <laughs> and then you realize, whoa, I'm getting off track here. All right, so I mentioned earlier that smartphones, or I guess phones in general, have been using a GPS or incorporating GPS since about 2004. So what about today's uh, smartphones with GPS? Are, are they accurate? Are they powerful? What's, what's the deal with them compared to a, a handheld device? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate about that, especially among Strava nerds that you know are chasing KOMs and are worried that other people are cheating or are using something that's less accurate or whatever. But the thing to know is that smartphones include most, you know, nice smartphones include the same GPS chips uh, that are in the standalone GPS devices that you might buy from Garmin or whoever. A lot of them do not have the GLONUS chipset. Um, but what the smartphones do have is they have a lot of other sensors that can be used to figure out your position. So if you're in an area that has cell phone service, your phone a lot of times will actually just use the positions of the cell phone towers to figure out where you are. Um, and they even also use Wi-Fi. That's why you know companies like Google are driving around in their, their Google car, figuring out where everybody's Wi-Fi is so that they can use that to pinpoint position uh, using smartphones. And so because of this, you can actually get in a lot of cases, you can get better accuracy because you're using more data points uh, to figure out what your position is. In fact, um, smartphones are unique in that you could use them indoors to actually navigate. So, you know, a lot of huge buildings and sports venues and things like that um, are actually, you know, being mapped and you can use your smartphone indoors to figure out where you are. It, right down to even better accuracies than typical GPS. And a lot of what's driving that is, you know, marketing and commerce. So companies would love to be able to know, um, say you're in the Apple store and you're like at the table with the MacBooks on it, you know, like they want to know exactly where you are and they, they have much more incentive than you do, uh, just to like get your Strava KOM. So, um, <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where it's going. And we, we did a test a few years ago, to see just how accurate various GPS units are. And we included some smartphones in our tests and actually even some tablets. Believe it or not, people do ride with tablets. <laughs> so they'll put them in a backpack or whatever. And anyway, so we, yeah, we, we had like 10 different devices, put them on a bike and rode around circular, you know, running track just to see. And it turned out that our phones and tablets were more accurate than any of the GPS units that we tested. So that should give you an indication. It's true, though, that 
this might not hold if you're in an area without cell phone service. So if the phone is relying just on GPS, just like your GPS unit is, um, it's possible they would have similar accuracies or maybe the phone would be less accurate. So you kind of alluded to this a second ago, but you talked about Strava and people racing each other. As we all know, Strava is, you know, it's a way we can virtually race one another on the trails and on the road on our bikes. And you talked about cheating. So, so is that something to worry about? Yeah. I mean, there was the head, was it digital EPO or there was a website basically where you could cheat on Strava. You could take your GPS data and run it through the machine and it would, you know, turn your slow times into fast times. I saw something recently. Somebody said that site's not around anymore, but what they were doing was, was really simple because again, the GPS data is just X, Y and time and sometimes Z. So all you would do if you wanted to cheat is you would open up that file. I mean, you could use notepad on your windows computer or, you know, text edit on your Mac and you go in there and just start changing the numbers, you know, change the times, change the positions. And it's, it's very, very easy to do. GPS is a, again, it's a really simple system, at least on our end. Uh, I'm sure getting the satellites up there was not easy, <laughs> but, but the data that they actually provide uh, is actually, yeah, it's, it's really simple and accessible. We actually, Singletracks actually attempted something similar to Strava in 2004. So we did a virtual mountain bike race thing where we, we picked a couple of trails and, you know, went out there with a GPS and came up with like different checkpoints. Those were like our segments. But yeah, in creating that, it was obvious to us back then too that it's very easy to cheat. So you can't really take a lot of stock in anything that you see posted on the internet in terms of, <laughs> you know, times that people are producing or whatever. I mean, it's just so easy to manipulate and cheat. So, you know, don't get all hung up on it. If you see somebody beat you, there's a million different ways they could have done that. They could have done it just by being faster. They could have, or they could have been in a car or they could have been on e-bike. Like That's right. you never know. Or they could have flown a little drone around with a GPS. Yes. On it. Who knows? Awesome. Well, this has been fun talking about GPS. If you guys want to check out any reviews of particular GPS units or see the article that Jeff referenced about testing the accuracy, be sure to go to single tracks and search for those things. And also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we invite you to please go on iTunes and leave us a review because it'll help other mountain bikers find us as well. So that's all we have for this week. We'll talk to you next time. Later.